The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English spelling for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows, when we study all of Scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within Scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. We shall also see that ultimately, as with all scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance, which is Jesus. In this episode, we continue our study of types and shadows with the story of Abraham and Isaac. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would quicken our spirits, minds, and hearts to receive the message of your redemptive love for us. I pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see beyond the types and the shadows cast to the substance involved. I pray that our understanding would take root and that your word implanted would grow and bear fruit to your glory now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. 
The episode found within the verses following Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, is a classic milestone marker and a cornerstone for any study covering types and shadows of the Bible. This incident between Abraham and Isaac formed ground zero and the blueprint for God's plan of redemption for mankind. Unless we recognize the substance represented by the types in this store, we are left with a historical narrative for which we have questions, but very few if any answers which make sense. With this brief introduction in hand, let us take a look at God's Word to see what we may learn about this episode. Beginning in verse 1, God speaks to Abraham. Scripture records what is to follow as God, quote-unquote, testing Abraham. Quote, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham? And he said, Behold, here I am, unquote. The original Hebrew word translated tempt, naka, is equally translated as test, prove, or try. Given this first verse, the natural mind, dare I say the skeptic, will immediately gravitate to the lexicon of supposed Bible contradictions. In these cases, the spirit and context of scripture is largely, if not entirely, forgotten. Such verses become pet favorites which are memorized and used outside the whole to ostensibly prove mistaken theology. Here, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 22 is inevitably contrasted by the skeptic against James chapter 1 verse 13, which says, quote, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, unquote. Now, if we listen to the skeptic, the question arises then, is there a contradiction? By limiting ourselves exclusively to one narrow use of the English definition of the word tempt, the natural mind might, without context, answer the question, yes. However, taking another look at the subject using spiritual discernment, and more importantly, correctly understanding the context of God's word, the answer is no. To explain, let us consider the following and pray that God's Spirit will provide His understanding to our minds and hearts. Firstly, in order to be accurate and complete, it must be pointed out that tempting can either be good or bad, righteous or evil. For example, I can either tempt someone to donate money to the poor or steal it from the poor. Depending on what the overall motive and reasoning, the meaning of the word temptation is diametrically different. If I strip out the motives and context and focus exclusively and superficially on the word temptation, the person doing the temptation appears capricious and contradictory. Second, assuming the suggestion causing temptation was confusing, the motives uncertain, or the reasoning nebulous, then it might be helpful to know more about the person making the suggestion. Does the person asking have our best interests at heart? What is the person's track record? Case in point, when man accuses God of testing or tempting, man must also ask, what is the objective of the testing being permitted by God? Is it simply to destroy us without help or hope? Or is the temptation designed to move us forward, to refine us, to make our faith stronger, or to remove disbelief? More importantly, 
we must recognize that God never leaves us without help or hope. God gives us power to withstand the trials and promises his strength to provide victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 puts it this way, quote, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it." Unquote. Thirdly, we must recognize that temptation comes from many sources. Traditionally, even if only in a superficial, secular sense, many, if not most people, attribute temptation to Satan, the devil. Now, in contrast to the temptation permitted by God, Satan's temptation is in direct opposition to God's purpose. Satan's stated objective for temptation is to make us backslide, to introduce impurity, to create doubt and unbelief. Rather than giving us power for victory, Satan does everything in his power to destroy us. In addition to Satan, temptation is also a natural result of our fallen sinful condition. Take any child and sequester them from birth, from every possible bad, evil, or sinful influence. What you will find is that before long, without exception, that child will inevitably exhibit admittedly sinful or bad behavior on their own. Inevitably, the child will become selfish and exclaim, Mine! to proclaim toys or objects as being exclusively theirs. Eventually, the child will say, No! when asked by someone in authority to do something. This is merely the beginning of sin and its effects. Lastly, every human lacks God's perspective. We are all finite. God sees eternity and knows every variant outcome before it began. As a result, no human is able to use their limited information and perspective to make judgments against God who has no such limitations. No matter what apparently horrible, tragic, terrible situation or event we point to, we are forced to label and view that event from a finite human perspective. Even if we were able to take all of human experience and consolidate it into one cumulative mass of understanding, the totality of that understanding would be infinitely small and insignificant compared to the infinite knowledge and understanding of God. Thus, when we find ourselves being tempted or experiencing quote-unquote bad events, it is easy to fall prey to finding fault with God for failing to do or not do what we deem appropriate to remedy the situation. Simultaneously, there may be any one or more reasons and explanations for our situations which we are unable to comprehend or appreciate due to our limited perspective. What must be ultimately realized is that while God is intimately interested and in control of all things, including each of our earthly, fleshly lives, his primary concern is our eternal state and the health of our spirit and our relationship to him. Now, the secular humanist and the atheist ignore eternity and the things of the Spirit, and consequently, they see God as unfair, impotent, or unconcerned. They reason that if God were good and were omnipowerful, he would not be allowing 
or causing evil to happen, much less exist. Conversely, using this gift of spiritual discernment and perspective, we may not understand all of what God is doing or why, but we see that the evil which happens is not attributable to God, but instead is due to the hardness of man's heart and his unwillingness to submit himself to God. In this respect, evil is similar to a busy intersection for which God has installed traffic lights in all directions. If everyone implicitly follows the traffic lights, then everyone reaches the other side and there are never any collisions. Unfortunately, man wants to do what is right in his own eyes and he wants to ignore God and his control lights. When man ignores the lights, there are collisions, there are injuries, there is death, sadness, loss, etc. Instead of accepting the consequences, we have chosen to blame God and want to know why he allows the consequences for the choices we make. With a proper context and understanding of the issue of temptation, we return to our story found in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Let us continue to take a look so that we may appreciate not only the type, but the substance of verse 2, which says, quote, And he said, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of." Unquote. Now, if you will recall, Isaac was the son of promise. God had promised Abraham that his seed, i.e. his descendants, would be as the sand of the sea. When Isaac was born, Abraham was a hundred, and Sarah was ninety years old. Sarah, hearing the prediction that she would be with child, laughed because she knew that she was beyond menopause and farther yet beyond childbearing age. Despite the impossible, God took that which was physically hopeless and by his grace and power made the impossible a reality. This supernatural event was the type foreshadowing the miraculous substance which was the virgin birth of Jesus the Christ. Even though Abraham waited for about 25 years, suffered setbacks, and had reached 100 years of age, Scripture records in Romans chapter 4, verses 17 through 22, the following, quote, As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him who he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that when he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness." Unquote. It was because of this miracle, as well as God's faithfulness, that Abraham was able to receive this command from God and not flinch. Since child sacrifice was not an anomaly among the people of Abraham's time, Abraham would have had to have a very personal and intimate relationship with God to be able to distinguish 
with certainty between God's voice and his own imagination. It was also because of God's ability to see the heart and know Abraham's faith potential that God selected and instructed Abraham, setting him apart to be the father of faith that he was. As a result of all this, God commands Abraham to take Isaac and to offer him as a burnt offering in the land of Moriah. To demonstrate the story was no accident. God could have chosen any place he wanted, but he chose Moriah. More specifically, God told Abraham to take Isaac to the land of Moriah to, quote, one of the mountains which I will tell thee of, unquote. While the mountain in question is not named, it is interesting to note that a familiar place named Golgotha, more frequently called Calvary, is located within the mountain area of Moriah. Historically, while this is the first time the geographical area of Moriah is mentioned, many rabbinic commentaries hold that this area Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac was the same place Adam and Eve and the pre-flood patriarchs had set up as an altar to offer burnt sacrifices to God. When Abraham arrived, it is believed the altar was in disarray and Abraham was forced to repair it. Later, 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 25, records that David bought the site from Ornan, which was being used as a threshing floor so David could use it to sacrifice. Later yet, King Solomon would build the temple here. Many believe that the Holy of Holies was situated in the same area where Abraham's sacrifice took place. The second temple was rebuilt in the same area where some of its walls, ruins, and foundations still sit. It is in this area that the temple will be rebuilt for the third time and that one day Jesus himself will enter as King of Kings. Verse 3 says, quote, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him, unquote. After receiving the command, Abraham did not hesitate, but instead rose up early in the morning and started out to accomplish what God had requested. God took two of his young men with him. While scripture does not record the identities of these two young men, most commentaries and Jewish tradition identify the two as Ishmael and Eliezer. As we examine Genesis 22 and compare it to the gospel accounts, it is not difficult to see the analogy between the type and the substance. In Genesis, we have Abraham, who is the type of God the Father, and we have Isaac, who is the type of Jesus, who will sacrifice himself for his own. Ishmael and Eliezer are the types of those two men who were crucified by the sides of Jesus. Ishmael was Abraham's concubine son, a son of a servant, and who was a logical consequence of Abraham's attempt to fulfill God's promise by the deeds of his flesh outside of faith. Ishmael agrees with the thief who did not believe in Jesus and who called upon Jesus to save himself. Both Ishmael and this thief are the type of all men and women throughout time who at some point find themselves confronted with Jesus upon the cross and must answer the question posed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, 
verse 15, which says, quote, But who say ye that I am? Unquote. Eliezer, on the other hand, was historically the eldest and faithful servant of Abraham who did Abraham's will. Eliezer agrees with the thief who readily acknowledged his fate of death by crucifixion as the just payment for his own deeds. Simultaneously, this thief seemed to immediately recognize Jesus as being righteous and not worthy of the crucifixion and death he had been condemned to. Lastly, this thief exercised complete faith in Jesus as being able to save him and the world to come after death. We find further comparison of the two thieves and their mindsets and as paraphrased in the publican and the Pharisee story found in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14, which says, quote, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted." Unquote. Verse 4 continues the incident, saying, quote, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Unquote. The obvious clarity of the three days cannot be missed. Jesus gave the prophecy in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, saying, quote, quote, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Unquote. Based upon this, we know Abraham and Isaac's journey, ultimate completion of, and deliverance from the required sacrifice was finished after three days on the same day that they arrived at their destination. Although Abraham, Isaac, and their companions arrived at their destination in the typology of the story, God's Spirit moves the writer to record the fact that the actual substance, i.e. the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, was appointed for a place and a time which was yet, quote, afar off, unquote. At the same time, both Abraham and God were looking and had appointed the same place, named Golgotha, or Calvary, as the quote-unquote place where both the type and the substance of the propitiatory sacrifice would take place. It is to this juncture of the cross that all creation, including Adam from the fall, looks, groaning, yearning to be delivered from death and separation unto God, until the event of the resurrection, Abraham stands as the type of all mankind who could only lift up his eyes and direct his attention, hope, faith, and trust upon the substance, quote-unquote, afar off, which was Jesus. Verse 5 says, quote, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, 
and come again to you, unquote. For those people with children who read Genesis 22, many will have an especially vitriolic and abhorrent reaction to what is going to be asked of Abraham. Because of this, the idea of a loving God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, a quote-unquote lad, seems to be irreconcilable to us. What is the biblical worldview which explains this paradoxical drama? In terms of resolving the supposed contradiction, it must be clearly remembered that at the outset, God already knew that insofar as the type was concerned, he was not going to allow Abraham to actually sacrifice Isaac. The reason why is that God had other plans already prepared which would unfold within the substance. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 explains, quote, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world, unquote. This concludes part one of our episode. Please join me for part two. Thank you for listening. Oh, oh.